Mighty God and everlasting Father, we thank you that you are the God who sees, even as Hagar said. The God who sees us, as we look to your word, we pray that he would take notice, that he would help in the preaching of the word, the Holy Spirit would aid the unction that we need to preach well, and for those who hear, Lord, that they would hear well, that they would, O Lord, receive the word with gladness, that it would be hidden in their hearts, that it would be good soil. We ask, O Lord, that you would do mighty works this morning, and that you would be gracious to us as we look at Genesis 1, verse 1, and then survey the book, and looking at how you are the sovereign God of the universe, and what that means, and what that means to us. And we so pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We read this last week. We're going to read it this week and for the next few weeks. However, it gives us a springboard into some of these different topics that we're going to deal with. Let's read Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The rest of the scriptures from that point demonstrate the reality of that verse. Here was God before anything was created, and God creates everything. He brings into being everything. He brings into being the rocks and the trees and the birds and the fish and the things that creep along the ground. And being able to do something like that demonstrates what we call the sovereignty of God. It's the Godhood of God. What is sovereignty? Supreme power. God has all power. He has the ability to take nothing and create, just by the word of his mouth, everything. Sovereignty also talks about being free from external control. Nothing controls God. Nobody tells God what to do. Nobody tells God how to act. Nobody tells God or counsels him in any of his works. It is fundamentally the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God, when we talk about the sovereignty of God. He has all power. and There's nobody that can thwart his plans. And the sovereignty of God that's seen throughout all of the scriptures, he's absolute, it's irresistible, and he's infinitely powerful in that way. And sovereignty characterizes his entire being. He's sovereign in every one of his attributes, everything that he does. If he loves someone, he sovereignly loves them. If he is just with someone, he is sovereignly just. Whatsoever his will is, Whatsoever his good pleasure is, that is what is enacted. His power is exercised according to his will when he wills and where he wills. It's the freedom of having complete control over everything. And it's the right to having such a control because he created everything. It's like parents, in a little sense, who have control over their children. They are sovereign over them. God is sovereign over everything that he created, and he even names everything that he created. He is the sovereign creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What did he create? He called the day, day, and the night, night, and the light, this, and the sun, the sun, and the moon, and the stars, and the fish of the sea, and the land, and the sea. He called everything, what they are. He named them all. He has sovereign dominion over them. He even tells people what to name their children. Genesis 17 and verse 19, it says, Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. This is the next chapter from what we read this morning. God tells them, this is what you'll call your son. You'll call him Isaac. In Genesis 32, 
verses 26 to 28, it says, And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This is where Jacob was wrestling with the angel, the angel of the Lord. So the angel of the Lord said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. So God has dominion over names, over his creation. And it, he demonstrates that by naming all sorts of things, naming everything. As a matter of fact, he even gives some of that dominion to Adam when he tells Adam to give all of the animals names. Adam had dominion over the animals in that way. God names everything. He has the sovereign right to name everything under his control. He has the sovereign right to dictate to Adam to name the animals. Tell him what to do. Genesis calls God in this way the most high God. Genesis 14, 18 to 20 says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And he blessed, and, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. God Most High in the Hebrew is El Elyon, which means the highest one. Or there's nothing greater than. It's actually used, that, that Hebrew phrase is actually used quite a bit of King David, the Davidic king. That he is the greatest king. When applied to God, it's demonstrating that he is the highest God, the greatest God. And it's interesting in that particular chapter, in, in those verses, Melchizedek says it three times. And the chapter says it three times. Moses writes it three times. He's God most high. The Father is God most high. He's God most high. The Son is God most high. And the Spirit is God most high. We're going to find that Genesis does a lot of those triplets throughout. But God is the sovereign most high God that actually condescends to us and initiates relationships with us, which is an amazing thing. The sovereign God of the universe would initiate a relationship with me. Why would he even want to do that? He sovereignly institutes covenant relationships, and he does it unilaterally. That means he tells people he's going to be in relationship with them, and they're in relationship with them. They don't get to say, no, Lord, I don't want to be in covenant with you. They don't get to do that. God says, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what you're going to do. And he institutes a covenant with them. A covenant is a pact or an agreement between two parties. But it's not like God will walk up to a man and say to him, would you like to be in relationship with me? He doesn't do that. He says to them, you will be in relationship to me. And as a result, you have to fulfill certain things on your end for, to be blessed. Otherwise, I'll curse you. They'll be blessed if they obey. They'll be cursed if they disobey. Let me give you a couple of examples from Genesis. With Adam, in Genesis chapter 2, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So here he took the man, whom he created, he placed him in the garden, and told him, This is what you must do. If you, if you obey, I'll bless you. But if you don't obey, then I'll curse you. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. In the Hebrew it says, in dying you will die. So there is a relationship based on the law that God has with his creation. He does it with Noah. In Genesis 6.18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, Noah would have been a nitwit not to do that. Noah, I'm going to destroy the entire planet. I'm going to destroy all flesh on it. This is what you will do. And Noah is to obey. Genesis 9.9 9 and 10. 
And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go into the ark, every beast of the earth. So not only does he do it with Noah, not only is Noah supposed to listen and follow what God has told him to do, otherwise he's going to die, but he does it with every creature on the ark with him. He makes a covenant with them that he will uphold them. Abram, another one that God makes a covenant with. Genesis 15:18. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Genesis 17:2. And I will make a covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Genesis 17:10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. So God not only initiates a covenant with Adam in the garden, and Noah and all of the animals, and every living creature. But he also makes it with his chosen people, with Abram, and a special covenant in which they follow to heed the commandments, the laws, the statutes of the Lord. He does that. That's why the, the language is that way. This is my covenant that I make with you. And so they are now bound to obey. Men are in one of two covenants. They are under either the covenant of works, following Adam. In other words, they have to obey God perfectly. Or they are in the covenant of grace, in which God graciously bestows his mercy upon them and upholds them in the covenant. Men are in one of two. Either they are under Adam or they are ultimately under the covenant of grace. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. God also sovereignly issues commands to people. He gets to command his creation. The power or act of exercising dominion over his creatures. He did that with Adam. We just read that a moment ago. What he did was he told him he couldn't eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. He couldn't do that. You shall not eat of it. The day that you do, you'll die. God makes that stipulation. That's the law. He's got to obey. He did that with Noah when he said to him in Genesis 9.1, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's a command. That's what they have to fulfill. Genesis 9.4-6 But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood, Surely, for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For the image of God he has made man. So he not only sets down that he has to follow a law, but he sets down what those laws are. In this case, it was murder. You murder someone, he requires your life as a result. And he even told Abraham, which is an amazing command, he said to him in Genesis 17:1, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. Blameless. In other words, Abraham had to so fulfill all of the commands and laws and statutes and everything and be blameless. Perfect. So God is able to enact these laws. He's enabled to tell people how to act. He's enabled to tell people what they should do. Why? Because he's the sovereign God over his creation. As a matter of fact, he's even sovereign over the very elements of creation. Think about the flood. The flood destroyed all of mankind, except for those that were on the ark. All of them. He destroyed the beasts of the field, he destroyed the birds, the cattle, the donkeys, the dogs and the cats, and all of the people. Husbands and wives and children and babies and infants and everything. God, being the sovereign God of the universe, is able, according to his good pleasure, to dispose of men as he so pleases. God can create men, like he did, and he can destroy them as well. God sets the time of somebody's life. Every person has one life. That's what they get. 
They get one life. It doesn't say how long or short that life is. Sometimes he'll give them warnings. Like in this case with the flood, he told Noah, yet man will be 120 years. From the time that he told Noah to the time that he destroyed the earth was 120 years. He says, my spirit is going to strive that long. In other words, when you finish the ark, when all the animals are in it, that's it. I'm then going to destroy all living things. Everybody has one life, but God sovereignly determines its length and its use. Genesis 6.17 says, And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. God is often depicted as this big ball of love. And at the expense, though, of all of his other attributes. God is just. God is holy. These men were wicked. And the scripture said, And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And every intent in the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And so he decided that he would destroy the earth and start again. And that's what he did. Not only did he bring the flood and destroy everyone, but after the flood had come, and after a certain amount of days, the waters receded. He, he not only brought the elements upon the earth, but he pressed them away and caused them to recede as well. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. He has power over the elements themselves. He also sovereignly confused the human language. And he dispersed all of the nations in Genesis 11. Listen to what it says. In verse 7, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may understand one another's speech. Now this is an amazing verse. Here, they were creating the Tower of Babel. They thought they were great. They thought, look, we're coming together. We can do anything. Let's create this giant structure that reaches up into the heavens so that we can be known throughout all of the world as the biggest and the best and the greatest. So God basically looks, peers over the clouds at what they're doing, these little, these little men trying to build this tower, thinking that there's something great. And he says, I'm not going to allow man to do that. And here's why, because if they do that, Pride will set in and they'll think that they're so great that the human race will be destroyed as a result of their sin. So what I'm going to do is go down and I'm going to confuse their languages. Now think about what he had to do. They all spoke a specific language. He changed that. He had power over their very minds to change the language inside their head that they understood so that some of them now spoke this language. And some of them now spoke this language. And some of them now spoke this language. And they didn't understand each other. So he dispersed them across the earth. Not only removed the ability to understand one another, but implanted a new language in their mind. God is sovereign even over the thoughts of men and the language they speak. Genesis also shows us that he sovereignly issued prophecy, things that are going to happen. And that means that God has the ability to control the path of time. Because if he says he's going to do something in the future, then he has to control things so that those things come to pass. Genesis 15 and 5, then he brought him outside and said, look, toward, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. In Genesis 46.3, so he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. He was telling Jacob. Well, to make him a great nation, he would have to control things, so those things will come to pass. God sovereignly is able to do that. He promised kings from the womb of Sarah. Genesis 17.16, and I will bless her and give you a son by her, then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. So he's going to sovereignly control the history of time in order to bring these things to pass. He promised the land of Canaan 
to his people and demonstrates that he's sovereign over the boundaries of men, where they live. Genesis 12.1 Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. What did Abram do? Who are you to tell me what to do? He didn't say that. He did what God told him to do. Genesis 17.8 And I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you're a stranger and all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession and I'll be their God. He sovereignly controls all of that. He will give the land to whomever he wants. He'll divide the land and give it to whoever he wants. He sovereignly sets up people in political power. Genesis 41:38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this? A man in whom is the Spirit of God. Remember the story of Joseph. And he rises to this political power. And later Joseph says, Genesis 50 and verse 20, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. The brothers sold Joseph into slavery. And he was a slave for a long time. He was actually thrown into prison. But then out of that, God providentially used certain circumstances to take Joseph out of prison and place him as the highest man in the land, only second to Pharaoh. Why? Even though the brothers meant it for evil, God meant it for good. He sovereignly oversaw everything that was going on in Joseph's life to bring about a certain end. And in this case... It was that many people would be saved alive because of this great famine that was coming and that God was sending. He even sovereignly controlled people's dreams. A vision with Abram in Genesis 15. A dream of a ladder with Jacob in Genesis 28. A dream with a pagan man, Laban, in Genesis 31. In Genesis 40, the, the, the baker... And the cupbearer had dreams that God had given them, and Joseph was to interpret. He sovereignly can climb into men's minds. He knows everyone's thoughts. Remember when you said this and that behind the door with this person? He knows that. He knows everything. He sovereignly destroys cities if he so wants. Genesis 19, 24 and 25. Then the Lord rained down brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Lord out of the heavens, from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities, and on what ground things grew. He sovereignly destroyed Sodom because of their sin and their rebellion and their wickedness by raining down brimstone from heaven, most likely raising up a volcano to utterly wipe them out. He sovereignly spared some people from that destruction. In Genesis 19, the angels were telling Lot and his wife, Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. So he escaped. So God sovereignly allowed him to do that. He could have destroyed Lot there as well, but he didn't. God sovereignly tests people if he wants to. Sends them through trials, afflictions. Genesis 22 and verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he told him to take his son, bring him up to the mountain and kill his son. He could tell him to do that if he wants. We'll be talking more about that story later in other sermons and dealing with why God had wanted him to do that. But God sovereignly tests people as he so desires. He even sovereignly designates the physical infirmities that they're going to have. Genesis 32:25. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. He touched Jacob's hip, and the socket went out. Forever limped, forever was lame. He can cause people to be leprous, cancer, diseases, all of these things that somehow most people think are just kind of floating out there and it's just by chance that we get... It's not never by chance. God sovereignly oversees everything right down to the minutia, to the cells that are within our bodies. He sovereignly ruled over nations' economies. 
and over life itself. The famine that he sent Egypt and he raised up Joseph to deal with it. But God sovereignly dealt with that entire nation of all the surrounding nations and sent a famine and everybody was starving. The scriptures also show that he sovereignly rules over sin, as a matter of fact. Genesis 20 and verse 6, And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Abimelech. He didn't let Abimelech touch Sarah. He didn't let her do it. Wouldn't do it. He was sovereign over his actions. He is sovereignly gracious, even though he's not obliged to be. After God placed Adam in the garden, and after Adam disobeyed God and fell, bringing all of men after him into a fallen state, into a sinful state, as a result of what Adam did, God did not have to at that moment or at any other, save anyone. He could have just been just. He could have said, you've all fallen. Adam fell. You are all fallen. I'll just send you all to hell. And God would be just in doing that. Because he's holy, and he requires men to be perfect. But he was gracious. Even after Adam fell, in Genesis 3.21, it says, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now, for him to do that, he had to sacrifice animals. Instead of killing Adam and Eve as a result of their sin, instead, he killed two animals and then took their skin and gave them a covering. See, that's what the blood does. The blood covers the one who's guilty. The blood is the covering, the umbrella for us. So that when God looks down upon us, he doesn't see us. He sees the covering that we have. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But God didn't need to institute sacrifice. He didn't need to forgive anyone. He could have just been just if he so wanted to. He would have been completely just in just destroying men and sending mankind to hell. But he was sovereignly gracious. And he didn't even, he not only clothed and provided, but also he instituted a means of grace, a means of forgiveness and sacrifice, in which the gospel itself is shadowed in Genesis 3.15, talking about the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. So even at that point, it's talking about the Redeemer to come. And Eve was so excited, and she thought that redemption was going to come so quickly, that in Genesis chapter 4, just a few verses later, she thought that the child that she was bearing was the one who was going to rescue them from the misery of the fall. But God is sovereignly gracious when he doesn't have to be. And then lastly, he sovereignly elects people, which means he's sovereign not only over their circumstances, not only over where they live, what they do, how smart they are or aren't, but he's also very sovereign over their souls and where they will eternally reside forever. He told Abram to get out of his country. He was sovereignly directing his chosen people. And in Genesis 25 and verse 23, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Talking about Jacob and Esau. And the scriptures demonstrate from Malachi 1, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? And God says, yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. He loved Jacob, the deceitful cheat, and he hated Esau. And it's an amazing thing that he would even love Jacob. But he places his, his electing love on people. And he will save those people to the uttermost as a result. God, just from the book of Genesis, we haven't done anywhere else, just from the book of Genesis demonstrates God is sovereign. He's sovereign over everything. What it really means that God is the sovereign God 
It's not just the exercise of his governmental power. It concerns his very being. He can't be anything else other than sovereign. And he does it by his good pleasure. He likes to be sovereign because he is. We can say that sovereignty demonstrates that the great God who is blessed forever has an absolute power and a right to have dominion over his creatures to dispose and determine them as seems him good. He is the infinite one. He is the one who fills heaven and earth. He is the one who created everything. There's only one omnipotent person and that's God. It's an amazing thing if you just kind of think of it in your mind. Most of us know who Shirley MacLaine is. You see her on television and so forth. She's a New Ager. She believes she's God. And in, in her book and in movies that she's made, there she is standing on the beach. Or let's think of it this way. Here is God in the universe looking around, doing whatever God does in other parts of the universe. And he hears something over here, some little squeak. And he goes past the, the Milky Way and, and all of these different galaxies and, and peers down to see this little squeak. And there's Shirley MacLaine standing on the beach, yelling, I am God, I am God. He, he laughs at things like that. God is the only supreme being. Christ says, you think you're in control of your life? Okay, let's put it to the test. Pluck out one hair, just a hair, out of your head and change it from its color to white. Change it from black to white. Just do that one thing. That one little thing over a hair. How sovereign are you? There is only one supreme power in the universe, and that's God. There's no one else. Is it profitable for us to think about this? Very. We understand who is our maker. We understand that we're calling on his name. After the Lord instituted sacrifice in Genesis, it says, then men began to call on the name of the Lord, to worship him. They know that God is to be worshipped as a result. He's the creator. He's the redeemer. Let us give him the glory of this great attribute by a, a real and practical owning that indispensable bond of obedience which he lays on every creature. We're supposed to follow what he says. We're obliged to it. In subjection and in faith, we're supposed to follow what God tells us. Christians are to obey his laws, his statutes, his ordinances, his commandments. And they're supposed to give him the highest attention in doing it. They should be pleased to do it. They know he directs and creates all the various providences that come their way. He's sovereign over their lives. He controls everything in their lives. They should be humbled at that. Dealing with such a sovereign can be hard, though. But it's still doable. It's hard because we aren't in control. And he is. What would have been, what would have, think about what would it have been like to be Noah? Noah, yes, Lord, I'm going to destroy everything on the earth. What would it be like to think about obeying him in those things? Noah believed God's promises and God protected him. That doesn't make the flood easy. Could you imagine being on the ark when the floodwaters came? He's talking about a boat, a little boat made out of wood and put together with tar with all the animals on it. Imagine being in it when the floodwaters hit. Imagine hearing the screams outside of the ark of all the people that were dying. Imagine being Noah. See, just because God is sovereign and just because we trust that he's sovereign doesn't make everything easy, but it does make life manageable. And the Christian's life is really just a large panorama of God's sovereignty over them. They basically get to view it. It's like a movie. They get to see all of the wonderful things that the sovereign God of the universe is doing in their life. And it presses them to work up faith. God wants them 
to have faith in him, that everything that he's doing in their life at that particular time is what's right and good and most helpful for their souls. Abraham was called a friend of God, James says, because he believed God, even though things were hard. And the scriptures, no matter where we look, whether we look to Abraham, or we look to the New Testament, or Genesis, or any place else, the scriptures demonstrate God's sovereignty everywhere, from Genesis 1, 1, right to the end. He calls things into being. He upholds everything by his power, all his works. Psalm 135, 5-6 says, For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and in earth and in the seas, and all the places. He's the sovereign God of the universe. But sovereignty overall is usually appalling to carnal men who do not have any desire to be ruled by the sovereign God. They want to follow their own wills. No one is going to tell me what to do. They want to be masters of their own destiny. They want to make the decisions in accordance with their own will, their own desires. But men's wills are no match for the will of the creator and God will even use their rebellion against them the scriptures call that a filling up of their sin like a cup and when it reaches its when it reaches its climax when it reaches its pinnacle God requires their life right there and sets them before him and judges them at that point think about Pharaoh everybody has seen the Ten Commandments on television You'd be, you'd be familiar with Moses and Pharaoh and the plagues and wanting to leave Egypt and those things, right? Think about Pharaoh. Why did God put Pharaoh on this planet? The scriptures are very plain as to why he did that. Pharaoh had an iron will that wanted to do his own bidding. But Exodus 10.20 says, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. He so set the circumstances around Pharaoh that the only choice Pharaoh would make was God's will. He so ordered it, and thus he was further hardened. Think about his attitude. Pharaoh's attitude is the same as people out here today, and the way people act. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. He wants to do his own will, but... The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He utilized his rebellion to demonstrate his own glory and the power that he would work through the miracles and the release of Israel by the hand of Moses. Some people say, listen, this whole sovereignty thing, I, I don't like it. Because if God is sovereign, then men are just puppets. I mean, we just went over all of this stuff. He's, in, he's into men's mind. He changes their language where they live, how they act. He hardens their heart. Uh, they're just puppets. Do you feel like a puppet? Do you feel like you're being manipulated? If God is this sovereign and man isn't free, doesn't that destroy man's responsibility for him? We're just puppets on a string. And the Bible is simply the record of the big play that God wrote out. And we're just along for the ride. Well, such an objection misses the idea that God is sovereign over the means as well as the end. Even though certain things will come to pass, the means to get to that end, he's sovereign over those things, but he ordains them. The clothes that you wore today, you would not have wore any other. God so fixed it that you would wear green, you would wear blue and blue and gray, and this is what he fixed today. Now, when you were putting on your clothes, did you feel like God was holding your arms and putting you in your shirt and you didn't feel that way at all. He uses you in a way in which you don't feel manipulated, yet accomplishes his purpose. He ordains the means as well as the end. But the reason people ask that question, the reason they go there, the reason they want to use that as an excuse not to believe in the sovereignty of God is because of this reason. Sovereignty is scary. It's scary. It is. Jonathan Edwards said, 
The sovereignty of God is the stumbling block on which thousands fall and perish. And if we go contending with God about his sovereignty, it will be our eternal ruin. It is absolutely necessary that we should submit to God as an absolute sovereign and the sovereign of our souls, as one who may have mercy on whom he will and have mercy and whom he will harden. See, it's scary to let God be God in a certain way, and our flesh doesn't like that. We want to have control. Men are thrown in jail, and they are placed under a sovereign rule in that jail. They don't like being in the cell. They would rather be out doing whatever it is that they want to do. Psalm 46.10, God says, be still and know that I am God. If we find fault with God's government of us, we basically are telling God that we know better than he does and that we are his counselors. But Job 41.11, God says, whatever is under the whole heavens is mine. It's his. As he is God, all things are his own, and he has a right to dispose of them according to his good pleasure. Think about this. Remember when September 11 happened, and the Twin Towers fell as a result of the planes going in them. Remember some of the newspapers and the horror of people's faces as they were running? They were covered in this dust. They were running away from these crashing buildings. They thought they were going to die. Imagine... If they saw something, they were running away from the buildings. Imagine if they saw something in front of them that caused them to be so afraid that they ran back to the buildings to be covered by its rubble. Listen to what Revelation 6 says. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. God, in his sovereignty, will come and judge men. The Twin Towers are nothing in comparison to the fear men will have when they stand in front of the Almighty God who is sovereign over every thought, and everything is going to be brought out. Every action, every thought, every word. Jesus says, every idle word will be judged. Sovereignty is scary. God is sovereign over everything. But though sovereignty may be scary, it can be sweet as well. It's impossible for us to look at the sovereignty of God and find it sweet, and find it nice, and not have a knot in our stomach in thinking about it, without Christ the mediator. Without looking at the sovereignty of God through Christ, sovereignty would be scary to Christians as well. Your house, your job, your finances, your intellect, your degree of talent, the boundaries of your home where you live, your very soul, everything, is ordained and structured by the living God, the sovereign God of the universe. But, it's sweet when we know that we aren't in control, but that God is in control for us and for our best. The Westminster Confession says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Everything. How can we sweetly think of God's sovereignty without Christ? It can only be a matter of terror and amazement to others. Nothing is pleasing to God in and of us, but only through Christ. It's Christ in us that excites God when he sees us. Nothing, is comf nothing in God is comfortable to men for their eternal good, but what comes through Christ. Imperfect men and imperfect women that don't have the blood of the Savior over them, yes, sovereignty is going to be very scary. God sees them as children of wrath. God exercises his sovereignty in the eternal salvation of their soul or not. We're dependent upon God in the great matter of salvation. We're dependent on him for every breath we take. Do you think 
that in a moment's notice, God couldn't, if he so wanted, just stop our breath and require our life right now. He, for all of us here, he set a day. There's a day when he will call us before his judgment seat. But, 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And because we have him as a mediator, for those who look to him by faith, as the Song of Solomon says in chapter 5, yes, he is altogether lovely. The wrath of the Lamb? Not wrath to me. For me, as a Christian, looking through Christ to God, he's altogether lovely. And so we rest in the sovereignty of God. You have to look at sovereignty through Christ in his will, in his desires for our good. You take the sovereignty of God today when we leave, when you're driving home or you're there tonight sitting on your favorite chair. Think about the sovereignty of God in your life. God expects his people to reflect on his sovereignty daily because everything that happens to them happens for a reason. Genesis teaches us over and over that God's in control and that's a good thing from our perspective. Imagine, imagine if God said to you right now, imagine if you popped in the living room right here and he said to us, each of us, for five minutes, you get to be sovereign. For five minutes, you do over your own life. Whatever you want, you're sovereign. What would you pick? I know what you would pick. I know what you would change. Um, perfect body. Instantly rich and debt-free. Free from any diseases, ailments, anything like that. Security for your family. All of the, That's where our minds would go, right? It, it ends up being like a genie in a bottle. That's what it is. You get three wishes, right? It's kind of the way that it would play off. You wouldn't think, first... And foremost, how, how God might be glorified. That, that's going to be my first wish. How God might be glorified most in me. How my sanctification in affliction might best glorify him. We wouldn't be thinking that way. We would have carnal thoughts, even if a limited amount of sovereignty were given to us. We'd, we'd want to be rich. We'd want to have a nice house. All those things. That's what would be flooding into our minds. James tells us, instead of all of that, and he was just talking about people who are making plans next year. He says, indeed, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we should live and do this or do that. James was teaching us in 4.15, if the Lord wills, then we'll do this. If the Lord wills, then we'll do this. He's trying to demonstrate to us in all the things that we do that it's his sovereignty. We don't need to be, we don't need to grab a genie in a bottle. We don't need three wishes. As a matter of fact, God promises to us in Romans 8.31, what shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? It's nice to have the sovereign God on our side. If we're Christians, God is for us completely and totally. School tests, employment difficulties, marriage problems, dry personal devotions, the mundane aspects of just everyday life. If God is for his people, then there is a treasury of blessing ready to be poured out at the right time in the right place. He's looking for us to trust him, but we're often impatient. Our plan is better than God's plan. What we want is better than what he wants. We need to wait on him and have him fulfill Everything that he desires for us at the right time. We forget that God is sovereign and we often find ourselves kicking against the goads. Or becoming like the stoic who goes through affliction and trial by simply biting their upper lip, lip and just kind of getting through it. But that's not what God wants for us. Christians really have no bad days. How could they? God is for them. Every day. He's glorifying himself in us. The sovereignty of God then should be sweet to us because the almighty God of the universe has taken notice of us. And he has saved us to give us everything in Christ for our good. We must repent of our rebellion against his will and his way and see his sovereignty as most sweet. And that's often a sign of a regenerate, changed, 
and godly heart that they so love the sovereignty of their Creator over their lives every day. Let's pray together and ask that the Lord would bless His Word to our heart and our mind. Father, we thank You that You are the sovereign God of the universe. We thank You that You order our life. We thank You that You don't leave leave our lives up to us. I'm glad you don't leave it up to me. Who knows what crazy things I would ruin or mess up or go the wrong way. We know, oh Lord, that we need you. We need your strength, your guidance, your wisdom. We need your sovereign hand over our life. We thank you for being sovereign and we pray that you would help us this day and always to be looking at your sovereignty in everything that goes on that we would be content, that we would be reminded that you are looking out for our best. Help us to trust you. Increase in all of us the trust that we need and help us to rely solely on you. We ask, Father, that you would hear these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.